We are continuing in our series in the book of Proverbs on Sunday evenings. This is one of the great wisdom books of the Bible. And the title or the theme that we're presently studying is How to Be a Wise Guy or Wisdom for the Ages. This particular theme of wisdom began for us all the way back to Proverbs chapter 1. And from Proverbs chapter 1 verse 20 through the end of that chapter, we saw what I labeled the warning of wisdom. Very soberly, God tells us that wisdom warns to us about heeding its words. In Proverbs chapter 2, we moved on to talk about the work of wisdom and how God blesses us if we mine out all of the riches of His truth from His Word and all of the blessings that result. And then, from our study of Proverbs chapter 3, we were challenged to consider the wealth of wisdom, all that God gives us by way of the riches of His Word that is lavished upon us. And tonight, during our study, both last time and throughout, I guess probably, the following Sunday that we'll share together from Proverbs 4, we're going to occupy ourselves with the concept of what we will call the way of wisdom. The way of wisdom. Now, why have I chosen this particular metaphor for labeling this chapter, Proverbs 4? Well, I haven't really chosen it. Solomon has. For instance, look in your Bibles at Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs 4, for instance, in verse 11. Solomon says, I have directed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright paths. When you walk, your steps will not be impeded. And if you run, you will not stumble. In those verses, you can see clearly that Solomon is using the metaphor of the way or the path or walking or running. Look, for instance, also in verse 14. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not proceed in the way of evil men. Verse 15, avoid it, do not pass by it, turn away from it, and pass on. This is obviously showing us that the metaphor of the way, someone's walking or the path, is emblematic of what we do spiritually on the path of God. Verse 19, the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Verse 25, let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Again, telling us that there's a path in which to walk. Verse 26, watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Verse 27, do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. Talking about our feet, talking about walking, talking about the way, talking about the path. All of these verses are speaking of the metaphor of walking on a pathway. And it's either a pathway of delight or a pathway of destruction. Listen to one commentator, David Hubbard, as he explains why Solomon might have chosen this kind of metaphor for us. For a time, the urban setting of much of Proverbs, for instance, Proverbs 1, verses 20 and 21, is laid aside, and the rugged topography of Palestine is in view. 
The scene recalls Psalm 23 with the gang of threats that stalk those who journey over craggy hills, rock-studded cliffs, or the moonscape stretches of the wilderness. It is a land of dark shadows, paths that beckon and lead to nowhere, false turns, dead ends, slippery clefts and yawning gullies, ominous caves and treacherous pits. And with all, the enemies are lurking, whether bestial or human, against whom wisdom and understanding, like the Lord's rod and staff, offer the only adequate defense to the young traveler." End quote. You see, that's why he could use a rich metaphor like that. It speaks so much to us of the way of life. It speaks so much to us of the path that God wants us to choose. And Solomon uses the scenes around him to instruct his son's way, the way of God's wisdom. He takes the things that his son would be familiar with, and he uses his own son's physical sight in order to teach him things spiritual. And of course, what better way than to use the metaphor of the path? There were no cars, no public transportation, no mass transit, no airplane travel, no motorcycles, no bicycles, only a beast of burden occasionally, or your own feet. And oh, what you could see when you slow down and look around, whether it would be for evil or for good. And that is why Solomon uses the metaphor of the way or the path. Now, what ways does he describe Specifically in Proverbs chapter 4, verses 10 to 19. Well, he speaks to his son of wisdom's way versus the wicked way. You follow along as I read Proverbs chapter 4, verses 10 to 19. Hear, my son, and accept my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. I have directed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright paths. When you walk, your steps will not be impeded, and if you run, you will not stumble. Take hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn away from it and pass on, for they cannot sleep unless they do evil." And they are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter with the full day. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. You have in this passage, I believe, a series of statements, first in verses 10 to 13, which speak proactively about a father's instruction to his son. These verses, verses 10 to 13, speak of both command and consequence. And then in verses 14 to 17, you have what I call the reactive response when you are confronted with evil and with evildoers, or even the threat of it. Now here, in verses 14 and 17, as is 
verse 13, verses 10 to 13, you have some command statements. But instead of those being couched with consequences, there instead follows a description of the evil person. You do have certainly consequences if you go with them, but here Solomon chooses to use but descriptions of those who are wicked. And then in verses 18 and 19, you have a concluding contrast, which is describing what he's just spoken of, the two paths, wisdom's way and the wicked way. Now look with me, first of all, at verses 10 to 13. And we'll call these verses the proactivity of a father's instruction. The proactivity of a father's instruction. Verse 10. He says, Hear my son and accept my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. Now, first of all, in this passage, Solomon gives us the command to follow a father's words. And I want you to notice two proactive commands of this passage. The first one is the one I just read to you, verse 10, and the second one is in verse 13, and we're going to cover those together. Verse 10, hear my son, accept my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. Verse 13, take hold of instruction, do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. With both of those verses, Solomon wants his son, as he has already commanded several times in the Proverbs as we have seen, he wants to command him to accept his sayings. Hear my words, accept them. And he adds here that if you do so, the years of your life will be many. You see, in the normal course of things, If you are obedient to your father, and if that father is obedient to God, then you will have a longer life, generally speaking. If you do what God says, you're going to see good days. You won't short-circuit the life that God has planned for you. Now, many people have asked me, does this mean that if I'm obedient to my parents, and if I'm obedient to God, I'll live longer? And the answer, of course, generally speaking, is if you follow God's prescribed will, if you do what He says, if you avoid evil, if you avoid the unwanted consequences of your life, then yes, generally speaking, you will even see the physical blessing of God that may even extend your life. Yes. Doesn't mean that it's true of everyone. Doesn't mean that in some cases God will not cut short a life for His own glory. That's certainly true in church history. But by and large, generally speaking, you do what God says, you listen to those around you who are godly, and God will extend your life. I want you to see this from Psalm 34. This is not just the only place in which something like this is mentioned in the Old Testament. In Psalm 34, for instance, we, we read these words in verse 12. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. In other words, if you love length of days, 
If you want to see your days extended, if you want to be blessed in this way, even physically, then keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Seek peace and pursue it. Don't be anywhere near evil. Do good. Generally speaking, God will protect you. You say, well, is that just the Old Testament? Well, it's interesting. In 1 Peter chapter 3, listen to these words. A quote from the Old Testament, but of course, nonetheless true, even as a quotation from the Old Testament, for new covenant believers. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. A quotation of that very passage we read. For the one who desires life, 1 Peter 3.10, to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. And then another quotation. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The one who desires to see life, see good days, inherit a blessing, to do good. This is even in the context of someone suffering. Should God grant someone, because of their righteousness and their obedience, a longer life, then God would be pleased to to do so and will receive the blessing from it. That's what Solomon's trying to tell his son. Son, I don't want you to make the kinds of choices for which when you do, you'll cut your life short from God's blessing. Look at what Solomon says to his son in verse 13. Take hold of instruction. Don't let go. Guard her. And then he gives the reason that you should take hold of instruction. The reason that you should not let go of it. The reason reason that you should guard it. For she is your life. It's essentially a way of saying the same thing. Long life you'll have, a life of blessing, the life of the wisdom of God in your soul. That's what you receive. Guard it. Just as your life would be elongated if you hear and accept the wise, godly sayings of your believing Father, according to verse 10, so verse 13, this instruction is your very life. Probably if there's one thing you've heard from this pulpit in the last six years is that the Word of God is important. It's your life. I remember Moses said that to the children of Israel. He said, hear ye this day, and he went into a song of praise to God, and he says, these words I'm telling you today, these are not merely idle words, but they are your life. They're your very life. They're your lifeblood. We might be able to say it like this. The life of the Christian is indispensably linked to the wisdom of God. If you have a pen, you might even write that down. The life of the Christian is indispensably linked to the wisdom of God. You don't know how to spell indispensably? Neither did I. I had to do a spell check. You do not regularly partake of the way of wisdom. You will not live the abundant life. That's the truth. That's the Word of God. That's what it says. And speaking, by the way, of this metaphor of sonship, father talking to his son, a son listening to his father, hearing and accepting, taking hold of, not letting go, guarding wisdom, that whole metaphor, not just of walking along the right path 
and having your father show you that path. But the whole metaphor of the father-son relationship, J.I. Packer says in his classic book, Knowing God, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. That's what it's all about. Solomon is that is in that place of God to his son. In essence, he's saying, I am God to you. Listen to my words. And his son is saying, I'm not just a father to, I'm not just a son to you, Solomon. I am a son of a higher one, of God the Father himself, and I need to listen to him. I need to be involved in in any kind of engagement of the attention of my mind to the name and the nature and the attention and the person and the work and the doings and the existence of my great heavenly Father. So that's why he says here in the beginning of this passage, Hear my son, accept my sayings. Take hold of instruction. Don't let go. Guard her for she is your life. Now, if you're like me, since we've been going through these Proverbs, we're saying to ourselves, this is a broken record. How many times have we heard this? How many times have we heard Solomon use these ideas? Hear, my son, accept, take hold, guard. Well, it may be because it's so easy not to do it. It's so easy to let go of it. It's so easy not to guard. It's so easy not to hear. It's so easy not to accept. And maybe our lives are being cut short, at least to some degree, in the providence of God because we're not taking hold. We're not gripping on the instruction of God. We're not taking a hold of the pureness of the richness of His Word. We're not hearing it, not accepting it. This is the the command of a father's instruction. And then look at verse 11. We might call this the call to follow a father's example. Not just his words, but his life. Verse 11, I have directed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright paths. Boy, here, he not only says, I want you to hear my words, which is exclusively what he said up to this point, but now he adds a dimension. I don't want you just to listen to my words, son. I want you to look at my life. I've directed you there, and I have led you. You see, it isn't enough simply to tell your sons to obey. You must also also show them how to obey. You must model for them what it means to know and love God. Show them. Lead them. I have led you. In upright paths. One of my former seminary professors, Henry Holloman, writes in his helpful book, The Forgotten Blessing, these words Few words can please a father as much as hearing a son say, Dad, I want to be just like you. However, such words may jolt a father because he wonders what kind of role model he is for his son. In some cases, a father may frankly admit, I don't want my son to turn out the way I did. 
Our Heavenly Father is pleased when we sincerely say, Father, I want to be like you, holy, loving, kind, and consistent. Unlike some human fathers, our Heavenly Father does not have to wonder if He is a good role model for His children because He commands them to be perfect as He is perfect, Matthew 5.48. Paul emphasized that God wants believers to reflect His, that is God's character, be imitators of God as beloved children, Ephesians 5.1. As we reflect God's character, He sanctifies us. Isn't that what we talked about this morning? God's spiritual children are to imitate the moral character of their Father. Through sanctification, we can become increasingly conformed to the image of God. That really captures it. You're not just telling your son what to do. You're not just telling him the way to live. You're showing him the way to live. And how is one conformed to the image of God? By hearing and accepting the sayings of God. That's what it says, Proverbs 4.10. Hear and accept my sayings, my son. The more you're around your heavenly Father, the more you hear Him speak, the more you'll be influenced by Him, and the more you're influenced by Him, the more you'll be like Him. Isn't that so true? The people you're around, you begin to think and act and talk like them. And as an earthly father to your own children, you must teach and lead, both of them in the right way. Both of them. Both are essential. One of the old writers, William Arnaud, says, It is a great matter for a parent... If he is able to say to his grown son, I have taught thee in the way of wisdom, I have led thee in the right paths. Teaching and leading are closely allied, but not identical. It is possible and common to have the first teaching in large measure where the second leading is wanting. They are two elements which together make up a whole, with both Education in a family will go prosperously on. Where one is wanting, it will be halting and ineffectual. Many a parent who acquits himself well in the department of teaching his children fails miserably in the department of leading them in the right path. It is easier to tell another the right way than to walk in it yourself. Isn't that so true? To lead your child in right paths implies that you go in them before him. You see, I've gone that way, son. That's the right path. Go there. Follow me. Do what I say and what I'm doing. Fathers, we must be spending time with our kids. It's absolutely paramount. I was reading this week in this great book, Christ-Centered Preaching by Brian Chapel. It really is a wonderful book. Even though it's talking about preaching, it talks in chapter 7 about how people are listening today. What are their capacities to listen? Brian Chapel says this, we're in the age of visual literacy, quoting someone else. The average adult who spends 50 hours a year in a pew roughly the hours of sitting and listening to messages for one year, will also spend 2,000 hours at home watching television. By the end of high school, the average American school child will invest more hours in television, 15,000 hours, than in class, 12,000 hours. 
Some estimate that the average child will spend more time watching television before entering school than he will listen to his father during his entire lifetime. Did you hear that? Some will spend more time watching television before entering school than he will listening to his father during his entire lifetime. And this was staggering to me. These same children will have watched 350,000 commercials by the time they are graduated from high school. 350,000 commercials. And for what profit? Add to these influences, movies, video arcades, highway advertisements, grocery packaging, and overhead projectors, videotape, computers. The conclusion is unescapable. Ours is par excellence, the age of illustration, and age when people are habituated to picture, picture thinking. It's amazing. People are watching and listening and hearing a whole lot of other things than listening to fathers. What happens then when someone does both teach and lead his children onto the right path? What's the consequence of doing that? Let's say you're committed to it. Let's say, I want to do that. I want to start now, even if I haven't done that. I want to confess my sin. I want to do what's right. I want to both teach and lead. I want to do that. Look at verse 12. When you walk... Your steps will not be impeded, and if you run, you will not stumble. Boy, what a promise. What a promise. This is a promise from God's Word. Generally speaking, when you follow your heavenly Father by following your earthly one, God will bring blessing into your life, so much so that Solomon declares that your steps will not be impeded, hindered, stymied. And if you run, God will ensure that you will not stumble and fall. What a tremendous promise. Do you want to have a clear path with no impediments? Follow your father's teaching. Parents, do you want your children to walk in the righteous way? Isn't that what we're praying for? Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we're agonizing over, especially if if you have teenagers? Well, then teach and lead them the way. Teach them. Lead them, show them, model. The old Puritan Charles Bridges writes this, What rest to the parent's conscience on the deathbed will be the recollection of children not brought up for the world but taught in these ways. You're on your deathbed. You're reflecting on your life. You're recollecting those things and you're saying, God, I believe that I was faithful to you. I believe that I both taught and modeled them in the way. Oh, what joy you're going to have. But he goes on to say, Yet this cannot be if the rod, when needed, has been spared, if the will has been indulged, the love of the world cherished. This, this other will be, if godly discipline has been exercised, if the Bible has been laid down as the rule of life, if habits of prayer, love to the service of God, fellowship with His people have been encouraged. The path, though rough and sometimes lonely, is a right path and a path of liberty. And then he closes by saying this, great words, The single eye, the single focused eye, the single eye will preserve a steady walk. 
Boy, you want that path. You want to walk down it. And if you do, if you teach and model as a father, and if you listen and obey as a son, he says, your steps will not be impeded, and if you run, you will not stumble. Well, that's tremendous proactivity. And all that I've said up to this point is proactive. You're reaching out. You're extending a hand of help. You're telling your son which way to go. You're spending time with him. You're working toward encouraging him and praying for him. You're praying for your daughter. You're wanting her to marry a godly person. You're already praying for that. You teach them the right way. You model the right things. You wear the right kind of clothing. That which speaks of modesty. That which speaks of the honor of God. You listen to the right things, whether it's music or otherwise. You don't watch things that you shouldn't because you know it doesn't honor Jesus Christ. That's all proactivity. Now look at the negative. Verses 14 to 17. The negative. Maybe we could call it the negativity of the wicked way. If there's the proactivity of wisdom's way, the proactivity of a father's instruction, here's the negativity of the wicked way. And I want you to see in verses 14 and 15 a negative prohibition. This is a negative prohibition to stay away from the wicked person. Up to this point, it's positive. Do this, do that. Hold on, guard. He tells his sons, albeit, I, I say, from a reactive and negative perspective, to stay away from the wicked way. He says, verse 14, Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not pass by it, turn away from it, and pass on. Do you see how he flips to the negative from the positive? Before, he's talking about guarding and taking hold of and hearing and accepting and all of those things. And if you do that, it'll be your very life. And if you do that, you're going to have a long life of blessing. Boy, that's positive, it's proactive. And now he says, but if you should see someone who looks to be on the wicked way, and he's coming toward you, avoid him. Notice all these supercharged words. Do not enter. That means don't even get on the road. Don't proceed. Avoid it. Do not pass by. Turn away. We might say in our own vernacular today, I'm telling you, son, don't do it. Don't hang around them. Don't listen to their music. Don't take in their words. Walk away from them. Run if need be. Run away from the path if you must. Boy, just this week, I was talking to one of our children about this very thing. About avoiding people who use filthy words. About staying away from people who want to seduce you to do evil who talk about drugs or sex or violence or killing. Stay away from them. Run if you have to. This is absolutely important. We were talking, I was to my child, in that crucible of an experience where he had with those who were trying to, to, to lift him to that place, who were trying to seduce him into that very kind of action, at least the thought and the words. And Proverbs 4 is right here. This is how the Word of God applies very specifically to the life of an individual, a father and his child. And that's why he just, he just puts all these words together. 
I mean, you'd think we'd receive the message, do not enter the path of the wicked. Okay, don't enter the path of the wicked. But what happens? The wicked comes by and he says something or he does something and it's a seducing. And so I might do this. And he says, but if that occurs, don't proceed in the way. Well, but what about this? No, avoid it. But, but possibly don't even pass by it. See, that's Solomon practically saying to his son, turn away from it, son, pass on. So you must warn them about what's going on around them. You can't be passive, that's the point. You cannot be passive. And you cannot, please, you cannot hope that they'll understand these things on their own. They won't. They won't just one day wake up and say, I get it. No. They need us. They need us in their lives. They will hear and they will see and they will be asked to do things that you wouldn't approve of, things about which you are against, things that are against the Word of God, and you must be active, proactive in their lives, and then even reactive when they tell you they've had an experience with an evil person. Now, I know we can't cloister them forever as much as we would want to, but they must go out. They will go out. You just want them to go out in the way that God would be pleased. And the way that God is pleased is for you to be involved. Very much involved. If they're already going to receive some of them, thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of somebody else's input, surely you could add a few thousand of your own. Right? Bridges again says, How often does fellowship with the wicked loosen the fast hold of instruction? Did you hear that? How often does fellowship with the wicked loosen the fast hold of instruction? It seems as though you're just trying to do everything you can to pound it, to screw it into their brains, and then it seems as though it's so easy for the wicked to loosen the hold. So easy. You know how it's so easy for children? Because it's so easy for us. So easy. Well, you might say... Is it really that bad? Or are you just being a killjoy? I mean, how terrible are these folks anyway? Well, look at verse 16. I'll tell you how terrible they are. For they cannot sleep unless they do evil. That's pretty bad. For they cannot sleep unless they do evil. And they are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence, verse 17. This is a nefarious group here, folks. In fact, that's what I call them here. Verses 16 and 17, the nefarious motives of the wicked. The nefarious motives of the wicked. And God is just... He's just opening up our minds with the Bible and he's saying, look, I'm telling you who they are. I'm exposing them for you. See, we don't know the motives of man, but God is already saying, if you can look at their lives, if you can look and see what they're doing in their actions, I'm going to tell you what their motives are. I'm going to show you. I'm going to tell you because I'm the searcher of all hearts. I'm the omniscient one. I can see right inside to what they're thinking. And this is what I'm telling you. They can't even sleep unless they do evil. 
They're robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. We might say it like this. They can't even have a good night's rest until they've concocted and then carried out some wicked scheme. Now, I'd say that's a, that's a pretty amazing, nefarious, wicked person who does something like that. Boy, I just can't sleep. I've just got to figure out how to do evil. Their whole purpose, it says, is to make someone stumble. Now, I want you to notice this. What does it say about God in verse 12? He's all about protecting a believer from stumbling. And what about the wicked man? He's all about, here in verse 16, making someone stumble. Do you see that? God is protecting the one who's on the right path so that they won't stumble, they won't fall, and the wicked man is trying to do everything in his power to make someone stumble. There are two forces here. There's the force of good and the force of evil. Their sinfulness, he says in verse 17, is their very food and drink. This is an amazing statement. It reminds me a lot of Job 15, 16 that says, Man drinks in iniquity like water. Isn't that an amazing statement? Wicked men are so evil and they devise so much wickedness that it's like they are all about doing it like someone's drinking in water. And listen, you don't have to turn there. Listen to Psalm 14.4. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread? In other words, here's God's people. They're trying to do the will of God. They're trying to love God. They're trying to do what's pleasing to God. And here are the wicked. They're trying to thwart God's plan. And they're trying to do nefarious deeds. And they're doing it as quick and as fast as someone who eats bread. Or as someone's drinking in iniquity like water. David Hubbard wrote, The evil actions form their very diet. Their bread and wine. It's like someone who has to eat. And believe you me, we have to eat. Everybody eats. And they eat something. And these evil people, it's like they're eating the the bread of wickedness and the wine of violence. It's like their food, they have to have it. So crooked is their life path, so deviant from the straight, that they can sleep the sleep of the satisfied only on those nights when they have done harm to the innocent and made well-meaning people fall flat on their faces. That's when they can sleep. That's when they're satisfied. When the righteous fall on their faces. That's when they're really, really going to have a good night's rest. And if that's not happening, they're all busy. Have you ever noticed that? If you're out late, you've come in late from something, you're maybe driving home from a trip or something, and you see that it's really, really dark... There's hardly anything good going on then, is there? There's a lot of things going on out there, and all you have to do is pick up your paper the next day or the day after that, and all you have to do is read about it. Robbery here, killing here, murder here, violence here. They're not sleeping. You and I, we're we're crashing at about 9.30, right? We're saying, boy, boy, the Lord's given you a good day. 
I've really seen the Lord work here and there in my life, somebody else's life. Boy, I'm just satisfied. I'm ready to go to sleep. And, and you're sleeping in 30 seconds. Not they. They are not doing that. Their whole diet is wickedness and violence. And then he ends in verses 18 and 19 with a contrast. This is sort of like the, the summation of it all. Verse 18, But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. That's one person. That's one group. What about the other? The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. I can't resist that play on words there. That they are in the dark and they don't even know over what they're stumbling. And yet even while they're stumbling and falling themselves, they're trying to carry you with them so that you'll stumble also. But all the while, God is picking you up so that you won't fall. That is, if you're hearing and accepting and holding on and guarding the way of wisdom. By the way, I just thought of 1 Thessalonians 5. This is that metaphor in the Bible of light and dark. And isn't, isn't it amazing? You've got three metaphors going on in this passage in just a few verses, verses 10 to 19. You have the metaphor, of course, that we've been talking about of the path and the way and running and trotting and walking. You have the path of the father-son, or you have the metaphor of the father-son relationship. And now you have the metaphor of light and darkness. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says this. But you, brethren, 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. Can you see what the Bible's doing? The Bible is giving us a metaphor, and it's giving us a clear contrast. If you're of the light, then you're a Christian. If you're of the darkness, then you're a non-believer. You're a wicked person. If you're of the light, it's the way of wisdom. If you're of the darkness, it's the way of wicked men. And he says in verse 6, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep... We will live together with Him. He's just saying essentially the same thing with a few different twists. He's saying, you're of the day. And if you're of the day, don't do the deeds of darkness. And if you're of the darkness, then you're wicked, evil. You won't even be able to sleep until someone falls and stumbles. Now let me ask you as we close. Do you want to be someone who is considered... To be of the light or of the darkness? Do you want to be considered someone who allows the light of the day to lighten your path? That may be the very reason why he ends with this metaphor in this passage. Because he's been talking about accepting God's words, hearing God's word, 
instruction in God's Word, hold on to it, guard it, and by the way, if you're of God, then God is light, and if you have light, it'll lighten your path. And if God lightens your path, you can see what you're doing. Have you ever tried to walk around in darkness, even in your own house, and you forgot that you rearranged the furniture two days prior? What are you doing? You're running into things. You're bumping all over things. You're falling over things. Why? Because you didn't remember and because you don't have the light. This is what we ought to be. Those who remember the way of wisdom and those who have the searchlight of the Word of God to lighten our path. Is that you? The more you walk in the light, the more light will be given you. And the more light that will be given you, the more darkness that is dispelled. And the more the darkness is dispelled, the more you're going to walk straight. And all the while, the wicked are stumbling in the dark. But, even though they're stumbling in the dark, even though they don't even know over what they stumble, they're redoubling their efforts. That's the amazing thing about people who walk in darkness. They redouble their efforts to try to figure out more ways, even though they're stumbling. And God is causing the righteous to be secure and not to stumble because He's providing the light of His Word to shine on the path. Let me ask you, which do you choose? Which do you choose? Doesn't seem like much of a choice, does it? You say, no, it doesn't. I mean, if you're talking characterologically, if you're talking characteristically, if you're saying it's either light or darkness, which path? I choose the light. What about daily light? What about the daily light of God's Word? Searchlight. Are you studying? Do you know these categories? Are you telling your children? Are you showing them? Are you using all of the illustrations and the experiences and the metaphors of life like the Bible does to show them the path so that darkness doesn't overtake them, so that they can avoid those things, pass by, say no to, get out of the way of? That's our... That's our obedient response. That's what we must do. There's no option. In fact, if we are the ones in the light, we ought to be redoubling our efforts. And the way we can redouble our efforts is to look around us. Why? Because it's all bright. I can see everything around me. God's showing me where the darkness is. He's showing me where they are. He even tells me what their motives are. He even tells me what their diet is. He even tells me that they're stumbling somewhere. And he even tells me that I should be as far away from that as I possibly can. And he says to me, and by the way, if you need more light, more light is available to you. The Holy Spirit will take his word and will show you the right, bright way. Your children, they need that from you. And you need that from your Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, we are so in need of this passage. Thank you for allowing me to study it.
Thank you for giving me, and now us, the light of revelation, the glorious searchlight of Scripture that shows us what we must do to avoid evil and evil men. Father, I pray that you would make us as children of the day, throw off the things that impede us, stymie us, hinder us. Oh, Father, I pray for physical fathers here, biological fathers, who need to be all about teaching their children showing their sons and their daughters not just what to believe, but how to believe it. Not just what to do, but how to do it. To both teach and live, to both preach and model, so that we would be directed in the way, not falling, not stumbling. Father, I pray for myself and for my comrades here that we, even tonight, tomorrow morning, early if need be, would take your truth, avail ourselves of its precious bounty so that we might avoid those things that speak of the dark where no good deed is done. We pray that your Holy Spirit would energize us for this most serious battle. For your glory and our good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.